This summer, we are looking at some of the Psalms. You can find it. It's the longest book in the Bible. It's right there in the middle, 150 of them. The Psalms are the songs and prayers of God's people. And like songs and like prayers, they express some deep emotions. Sometimes these emotions are joy and praise. Sometimes these emotions are frustration and lament. The Psalms help us to better understand the inner emotional spiritual life of God's people. And our psalm for this morning is Psalm 73. And though it may not say this in your bulletin with the text, in your Bible you can see it is a psalm of Asaph, that guy that we heard about in our Old Testament reading from 1 Chronicles. It is the first of 11 psalms in a row attributed to Asaph. And these 11 psalms have a common theme running through them. It is dealing with the fact that the wicked seem to prosper while God's people suffer. And that can cause a lot of frustrated emotions. And one possible reaction to seeing the wicked thriving while you are suffering is the reaction of envy. That we want the life of comfort and ease that other people have. And over time, we can despise people who are doing well, begrudging them how God has blessed them. We can even grow bitter towards God himself, feeling that we deserve a better life than what he is currently giving to us. And so Psalm 73 helps us to see envy for what it is, and then it points us in the right direction to work on eliminating envy from our lives. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm 73. You can also look in the bulletin if you'd like to look there. We're in Psalm 73. We're going to look at all 28 verses today. It is a Psalm of Asaph, and he's dealing with envy. Let us hear the word of God this morning. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how the Psalms really open our eyes to see into the heart of your people, into the internal turmoil and struggles that go through our hearts and minds as we wrestle with life in this fallen world. Lord, we thank you for your word, how it is true, how it is inspired, how it is perfect and inerrant, how it does all that you have made it to do. And so, God, today we pray that you would bless us by the hearing of your word. Lord, use me in spite of my sin to faithfully preach and proclaim your word. I pray, O God, that you would help me to explain your word and apply it to us. I pray, O Spirit, that you would go forth in the power of your word and that you would work in us, opening our hearts and minds, giving us ears to hear and working through your word in us that we would be drawn closer to you, that the scales would fall off our eyes, we would see our own sin, but also be drawn towards your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at our text today, the big question I want us thinking about is this idea of envy. How do we eliminate envy from our lives? That if it is something very young children can struggle with, and it is something those of us who are no longer very young children can struggle with, then certainly it is a problem that persists in life. And so we're going to look at how our passage shows us what envy is. We're going to examine what envy is, see how we are shown to eliminate it, and finally we're going to evaluate how we're doing with this. How are we struggling with envy? So as we examine what envy is, we are given some very important context in verse 1. Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so he has this core tenet that he believes, that God is good and God is good to his people. I don't know about all of you, but I grew up in my family when I was young and around the dinner table every night we would pray, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. That we believe God is good. That is a fundamental belief about life in this world for God's people. And yet, in verse 2, he says, I nearly stumbled away from that. I struggled to believe that. I hit a bump in the road of life that shook my belief in God's goodness towards his people. So what was this bump? In verse 3, he tells us, For I was envious of the arrogant 
when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So even though God is in control of all the world, even though God says, I will be good to my people, he looks at the world and he sees the wicked prospering. The very people that you would expect God to curse instead of bless, they are the ones living at large. Notice that he's not angry or envious of those who are hardworking, good people. That makes sense to him. What stirs up envy in him is when those who disregard and dishonor God go through life at ease. And then he starts whining about it, if we're going to be honest. In verses 4 through 12, we have a lengthy, lingering picture where you can hear his pouty voice come right through. They are not in trouble as others are. They're always at ease, increasing in riches. They're healthy. They have no pains, no difficulty. And so he sees what that does to them. Because of that, they now are proud and threatening and boastful. They mock God, saying, clearly God doesn't care what we are doing. We would have suffered consequences if God actually cared that we were being wicked. And when God's people see this, they can stumble in their faith. That's what we see in verse 10. He says, therefore, his people turn back to them, that is the wicked, and find no fault in them. God's people are tempted to trust their eyes more than God's word. We see the prosperity of the wicked. We see they are not judged. And we think prosperity sounds pretty good to me. I guess I can just do whatever I want and God won't judge me either. And so that's where they're tempted to stumble. And what makes this even worse is he's trying to do the right thing. He's saying, my efforts at following God are not paying off, so to speak. That's what he says in verses 13 and 14. He's saying this godly life is fruitless. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. See, envy exists when people get things we don't think they deserve. But envy really intensifies in us when we feel like those people are getting what we deserve. And that's what Asaph is saying. He's saying, what's the point of even being righteous? What's the point of following God and doing what is good when those wicked people over there are enjoying a better life than us? Now, I think if we are honest with ourselves we can appreciate that struggle. A struggle perhaps we have had. See, we're, all, we're okay with self-denial if it pays off. If you are denying yourself in the present for something in the future, that makes sense. It's kind of like how when I go to the ice cream store, I don't get five scoops of ice cream. Because I know that sounds good in the present, but I'm denying myself in the present to pr save myself from a very bad future. The same goes for our money. We don't spend our money now because we are saving our money to go on a vacation in the future. We see denying ourselves now pays off in the future. But if we are denying ourselves and we don't see any payoff, we start questioning, why am I even denying myself? 
No one wants to deny themselves just to deny themselves. Holiness is hard. Putting others first is hard. Being kind and forgiving is hard. Especially because holiness is countercultural. People will look at you weird if you follow God. We stand out for following God, for holding to a biblical sexual ethic, for being committed to honoring God with our time as we come to worship, with our treasure as we give to the Lord and those in need. We stand out. For what benefit? For what reward? In verse 14, he, he just ends his complaint. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He confesses that he feels like nothing good has come from following God. It has not been worth it. He would have rather been at ease enjoying the prosperity of the wicked instead of the holiness of the righteous. When he sees things he desires, when he is filled with envy, he can't enjoy life. One scholar has put it this way, that the power of envy is such that it made even the Garden of Eden feel like it was not enough. Literal paradise was not enough. We always want something more. Well, if that's the kind of power envy can have in our lives and it can destroy our joy, how do we eliminate that kind of desire? Well, we have to figure out where do we take these desires? Where do we go with these feelings of frustration, these feelings of envy? Well, we should not take them to other people in complaint. Because when we go to other people and complain, what we want is someone to come alongside us and agree that those people don't deserve the good that they are getting, and we do. The psalmist sees that as just self-pity. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When we vent to others and complain to them, we are essentially inviting them, come join my envy party. Come join my self-pity party with me. And we lead them into our sin. And so we shouldn't take these feelings to others in complaint. But then, if we don't do that, we're tempted to just bottle them up. To keep them to ourselves. But in verse 16, the psalmist tells us, don't do that either. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You see, if we stay quiet about these frustrations, we're just going to stay frustrated. We won't be able to figure out how God can be good and things can seem so unfair. We will grow increasingly bitter towards God and these feelings of envy will fester within us, poisoning our soul, robbing us of our joy. And so we shouldn't complain to others. We shouldn't keep them to ourselves. What we are called to do is go to God with these feelings of envy. That's what he does here. He says that is what helped him in verse 17. I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned there, that is the wicked's end. It was in the context of worship that Asaph was able to work on eliminating envy. And as he worshiped God, he was reminded of two very important truths. He was reminded that God will judge the wicked and that his envy was ultimately directed against God. First, we see that he realizes God judges the wicked. 
See, the ease and prosperity of the wicked will not last forever. Even though they seem at ease, they are in a very unstable position. He says they are on slippery ground. That God's going to make them fall like they're trying to walk up a slip and slide. I would not recommend that. And when he does bring judgment, it will be sudden and complete. That's what verse 19 says. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And so the psalmist is reminded in worship that those he envies who seem to have it all now will soon be in a very unenviable position. And so this helps him to better understand what he sees. Though the wicked may prosper and be at ease now, he says it's like a dream. That this reality in this world of what seems unfair is like a dream. And when God judges the world, the wicked will get what they truly deserve. That things will change like you're waking up from a dream. And God's people will be blessed by the Lord. Everything unfair will be made right When he goes to God, he can see this clearly. But only when he goes to God. He doesn't get that perspective from others in complaint. He doesn't get it by holding it within. Worship reminds him that God is holy and good and will judge the world. The problem is God's justice reminds him of a second very important truth. And that is that he is directing this envy at God. He is sinning against this God who will judge. And so as he worships, he is confronted with his own bitterness and ingratitude. Listen to verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Coming to God helps him to see how stupid he was. To say things like, what's the point of holiness? Have I followed God in vain? Sometimes we have to say our sinful thoughts to God in order to hear how stupid they are. Have you ever done that? Have we brought a complaint to God in prayer only to realize as it comes out of our mouth that we're like, man, I am really selfish right now. I am really foolish. Like I got nothing. God doesn't mind when we bring these complaints to Him because He knows they're going to be exposed for the whining that they are. And He is going to turn us around correctly. That when we come to Him, we are like beasts. We are brutish. We are like animals driven by just primal urges for food and territory and mates. That's all we're looking for. And God helps change that. He helps change it so we see our sinfulness. But when we see that, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear that we are coming to God in some anger because God shows grace to brutish, envious sinners like us. Look at what happens in verses 22 to 23. We see him start resting in God's grace. He says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Do you hear that switch right there? That he says, I was a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am with you. He goes from angry, sinful toward him to simply with him. How does that happen? 
It happens by grace. That God's loving hand is extended to us. Brutes like us. To hold us and pull us out of our envy. To love us, to forgive us, and help us. And right then and there, we see just the whole tone of the psalm changes from whining to worship. He trusts that God is with him and will bless him. He looks forward to the day when God will receive him into glory. He thinks that even if his heart and his flesh fail, God will continue to be his strength forever. He's exploding in resting in God's grace. The envy has been eliminated as he recognizes the wicked are going to be judged and God will bless us with his glorious presence forever and ever. I mean, it is all changed by the end of the psalm. By coming in to worship God, he is transformed. Look at the, look at the progress from verses 1 through 3 to the last three verses. He goes from nearly stumbling in his sin to finding refuge in God. He goes from envying the wicked to trusting God will judge them. He goes from bitterness and doubt to delight in the Lord. He goes from looking at all he didn't have to saying, whom do I have in heaven but you? Worship changed him. He is able to delight and rest in God and eliminate envy. So now we need to take a moment and evaluate how are we doing with envy? Can we say, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can we say that about God? And if we can say it, can we mean it? Do we believe that God is better than the best circumstances we could have here on earth? Do we believe that being with God and knowing God is better than prosperity and ease? We may believe it for a while, like till 1201 today, you know, just about. We may believe it while we are here. But envy pops up again and again like weeds in your flower bed. That just when you feel like I eliminated envy at worship this week, you see someone else whose circumstances you feel should be yours, not theirs. You instinctively think that's not fair about how someone else is being treated or being blessed and you're not getting that blessing. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's broad. Maybe you envy the way the world celebrates the wicked instead of honoring God and His people. Maybe you envy how people who are cruel seem to have long life and health, while you who follow God seem to battle cancer. Maybe you envy those who are deceitful and greedy for material prosperity while you are pinching pennies. Maybe you envy your lazy co-worker who seems to always get promoted and rewarded, and you don't get what you feel you deserve. Maybe you envy your sibling who seems to get treated better than you do. What do we do when these weeds of envy sprout again and again in our hearts? Well, the first thing we need to do is 
Not complain about it. Not bury it in. But bring this to God and acknowledge we are weak sinners. Like it says in verse 26, our flesh and our heart may fail. We all struggle with envy. There's a reason someone decided it should be part of the seven deadly sins. It's a bad one. It's out there. But we bring them to God because God is the one who can strengthen our hearts. We remember that God promises, I will hold you by my hand so when you stumble, you do not fall down all the way into your envy. And we can bring our sinful, stupid complaints to God knowing that He's going to just turn them back around and reorient us with His grace. But this happens in worship. It happens in worship where it is shaped by the Gospel. For as we come to worship, we are reoriented and strengthened by the truths of God's perfect justice, of our corruption and sin, and His amazing grace towards us. You see, each week we come together and we are reminded that there is a good God who created the world. That He is holy and He will judge all people. And that is a frightening truth for envious sinners like us who deserve God's judgment. But apart from any good in us, God mercifully reaches out to save us in Jesus Christ. That Jesus takes the just wrath against our sin upon Himself so that we can receive His righteousness and the blessings of salvation. And we receive them as the Holy Spirit indwells us and strengthens our heart. See, the Spirit transforms us to be more and more delighting in God and in His grace. The Spirit exposes us to the Word to show us our sinfulness so that we are driven back to God's mercy and that we can delight in Him more and more. The Spirit shows us the wisdom of His commands that righteousness is its own reward. That prosperity in this life is not our goal because the Spirit assures us that He is our down payment, our assurance that we have an inheritance in heaven. That God is our portion and we will be with Him forever. See, as the Spirit works in us and through the Word, He helps us to be honest with our struggles with envy. And we can bring them to God. Openly, honestly, often stupidly, in prayer, that He might reorient us to the truth as we gather each week for worship. So that we can join in with Asaph and testify to the truths that we know. That truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. It is good for us to be near God. And there is nothing on earth that we desire except for Him. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that You would work in us to expose the envious desires that we struggle with. Lord, turn our eyes away from the things that we covet in this world, the things we feel we deserve, and may we look instead to You, seeing that we deserve Your wrath for our sin, but seeing that You give us Your amazing grace in Christ, forgiving us of all of our sins. And so we pray, God, that You would purify us, help us to be open and honest with our sin. And we pray, O Lord, that we would find greater delight in You. Bring us back each week to worship You, to be reminded, O God, of Your amazing grace, and to sing Your praises and be drawn up into Your glory forever and ever. Amen.